The Movie Mork Podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you'd like to learn more about how to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash quasinim. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it will haunt you, you wear it well. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to the Movie Mork, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore. And I'm your co-host, Annie Neller. And special returning guest, friend of the show, say hi, Matt. Hello, Doc. How goes? Are you... <laughs> okay, friend of the show, Mateo Guerrero. How you doing, buddy? Please stop the bit. <laughs> I am Neptune. I don't actually, uh, I haven't developed my tethered sauna. Hi, it's pretty great to be on the show. How's it going? My tethered sauna. Uh, oh no, you're going to start a thing. Oh no, it's already very oh. much a thing. I've seen some people like. Oh, I have actually seen a couple pieces of art. It's very nice. Okay, so um, to get back to the podcast for a second, <laughs> this is the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. We are dissect movies and do a bit of critical analysis, a little bit of review, a lot of fun. Um, and today we're going to be cutting into Jordan Peele's 2019 sophomore movie, Us. And boy howdy, what a fucking movie. So the first thing we always want to do here, Neptune, is uh, we talk about context and kind of what these films mean to us, what we were expecting going into it, and so on and so forth. And um, I'm going to go ahead and start with this one is I just had really high expectations for this. I loved Get Out, and I've been a big fan of Jordan Peele's comedy and his sketch work for a very long time. So when Get Out was incredibly fantastic, and the trailer, good lord, the trailer for this was very viscerally upsetting. And, like, it's very hard to do that, I feel, to get, like, a trailer that, like, captures that essence of, like, a horror film. And, yeah, we can have that whole discussion about how people are afraid to call it a horror film later. But I just just had nothing but high hopes for this film. What about you, Matt? I really like Get Out. I really enjoy, like, I feel like I'm every one of our generation just, I don't know if we grew up watching Key and Peel, but we definitely mainlined that show like it was a goddamn manna from heaven. So I've always really appreciated his work, and us, that trailer, really looked good. And every time you, your first movie is as strong a going as Get Out, uh, I'm really interested in seeing what comes next. Annie? Yeah, I mean, I think just to echo what both of you have said, I also enjoy Get Out. I actually taught a a class that used a lot of the film to kind of frame African-American history through the lens of the Gothic. And so Peel is somebody who I really, really like as a director because he's so detail-oriented. And I'm constantly finding myself returning to Get Out and seeing these new details in it that I hadn't seen before. And I have a feeling that it, Us is going to be a kind of similar thing for me because I enjoyed it. And I was just really excited to see him making a new project and hearing that he's working on The Twilight Zone as well. So Yeah, that was a really set. exciting announcement. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's one thing about this being so detail-oriented is like, 
Um, two things. One, this is another thing going into this. I was really annoyed because this came out a week later here in the, in the States. And just the constant tweeting about the fucking twist ending just, like, upset me. It's like, yeah, I get that everyone's excited about it, but now this just means I'm going to be looking for a twist ending, so I'm going to be, like, really detail-oriented in my viewing. And uh, But this also harkens back to the first trailer, where a lot of people called that, um... Spoilers for us, by the way! Um, spoiler warning starts here. Um, get out while you can. Ha-ha! <laughs> um... But a lot of people called the fact that Addie was switched by her being offbeat on the snapping in the first trailer. So, you know, there are so many details that allude to the twist. And that's one of the things. Okay, well, well let's actually just go to the review portion because, like, I'm just going to I'm just going to go off on this. Um, so, Annie, what did you think of us? I'm going to go ahead and give this film an A+, and it's not because I think it's flawless or perfect in any way, but I think that the conversations it's generating and the questions it allows us to ask are really, really important, especially right now. Whereas Get Out is really kind of about white liberal racism and the violence of that, um, Us is much more about class struggle, and it's very much about... The fact that middle and upper class life is sustained through the suffering and subjugation of people in other socioeconomic classes. I think that's a very important conversation to be having. Um, but I also think that the film raises some some real questions about, you know, who the tethered are. Um, what they're a product of, like what system produced them, and how all this came about. So the film is doing some really cool things thematically, um, but also we've got some excellent performances in this one. Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, and Elizabeth Moss absolutely slay in this film. Um, their performances are just so haunting in places. And um, we'll talk about the two kid actors as well, um, the two children. They are just absolutely, I was stunned by them. I was stunned by the performances that they gave. And um, yeah, so that's what makes this one an A plus for me. I'm really kind of blown out of the water by this. Matt? I I think I need to see this movie again, but if I, I'm going to give it a score of an A. I think it's, it does everything in it is really great. It's I can give. I feel like I'm uh, gonna be talking, giving excuses for why it's not an A plus, but it's just a really damn good horror movie. And like you said, Annie, like the details in this film are so spot on. The acting is fantastic. The cinematography is so well executed, and the music. Oh man, the music will just yeah. get oh, no, in it's my so head good. forever. The, the, mm. But God, the fucking the fucking credit, the the title stinger. With mm-hmm. the chanting and the mm-hmm. oh god that 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 upset me, that was so good. Yeah, so I I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like there are things it could have aimed a little higher for a plus, but again, that's the difference between a hundred and over a hundred. It's still a great goddamn time. Yeah, and uh, I'm actually going to go ahead and go with Matt on this one. Is I'm going to give this one an A, and. Specifically, I love... This is so close to an A-plus movie for me. I just... And this might be my own personal read of it and my own kind of interpretation that's kind of spoiling this for me, but I just do not like the way the ending was handled, and we'll get into that in a little bit. 
Um, I just feel it kind of undermines a lot of the themes that I felt were resonant in the film. Okay. Um, so let's get uh, mechanical. Let's talk about what worked and what didn't. And I think the first thing we have to talk about is we have to talk about Lupita Nyong'o and just her incredible performance in this. Like, she is the anchor for this film. So damn um, good. Oh my god, yes. Um, like, she really conveys, like, trauma and panic very well, but also, like, menace and malice and... Because, uh, like, everyone's doubled up. Everyone's doubled up. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. Literally every character in this movie is double cast. That's... What the fuck? I feel like most... I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that is a huge part of, like, what makes this movie so special is the sheer acting talent of the entire cast. Because each double carries themselves in a completely different manner from the main people. And, like, some of these portrayals are really naturalistic. And so, like, the family just seems like kind of very normal, average, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But you don't realize how much of that is the performance until you see them be completely different as their tethered self. And, like, you realize it's all just such a deliberate performance on everybody's part. Every aspect of what they're doing, their physicality, their vocalization, it's all part of it. Yeah, that is one thing I noted is I initially felt like I was kind of disappointed in Winston Duke's performance, but then you kind of, I forget that he's also Abraham, and he's terrifying. The like, same guy. Yeah. and It's like, it, 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 it's so difficult in my head to, to like, put together that both roles are one person. Because, like, I'm always talking about Red and Addy. I'm always talking about, you know... Um, Gabe and Abraham and then it's just like wait no these are both like I'm I'm thinking about Winston Duke I'm thinking about Winston Duke as Gabe I'm thinking about Lupita as Addie or as Red but like meshing those together is difficult for me and it feels like it was seamless like that's that's so impressive in the fact that you're not noticing it like it's just wow imagine them shooting all these scenes with each each one of these actors playing without their opposite number because they are their own opposite number yeah, no, it's really fantastic. Um, but, like, with Lupita in particular, though, like, trauma, I think, is kind of where I see a lot of this performance coming from. And just, like, her face mm. in both roles really conveys this kind of trauma and, like, it's it's just, There's like... There's also a fierce yeah. protectiveness to her... I don't know, like, to her facial um, expressions as well as to, like, some of her bodily posture throughout the film. Like, a fierce protectiveness of herself, of her identity, which has a lot to do with the twist ending. Um, And then also with her family members. Like, she kind of assumes a different role towards the latter third of the film than she had at the beginning. So it's... This is a very complex character, and I think she's brought a lot of emotional nuance and really just kind of like a nuanced physicality to it as well. This is difficult work. Also, she's just gorgeous. Can we say that? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Because honestly, when we talk about Winston Duke, we have to talk about the thighs. Because fucking hell. Winston Duke. Winston Daddy. Is ridiculously built. And the fact that he comes off completely non-threatening as Gabe and, like, non-impressive as Gabe is so amazing. 
Yeah, no, he's he's just lovely. And like again, like he he plays like the harmless, clueless dad so well. And I I love actually one thing I really do like that he kind of pulls off here is I was not expecting that he would be injured throughout the film. Um, because of the way that the trailers are presented, you know, you expect you see him with the baseball bat, you see him doing the bravado in front of the house, you expect him to be a much more physically intimidating and present character, where he's basically sidelined for the entire film. So it, I think it's also just like a defiance of expectation that kind of throws a bit of dissonance into that. I mean, I think there's a couple things going on with Winston Duke's character. Like, on the one hand, Abraham slash Gabe is sort of Jordan Peele's response to these broader cultural stereotypes of black men that position them as hyper-violent and hyper-masculine and cocky. Um, And so the character of Gabe really adds a lot of nuance. Um, He is not a stereotype in that vein. He is kind of its opposite in many ways. And so that's part of what's going on. And then on the other hand, we've got this sort of critique of Gabe's masculinist rhetoric, right? Like his his position um, as a man who is not listening to his wife, not believing his wife when she talks. Um, there's a kind of, at times a little bit of a, a cluelessness to him. There's at times a little bit of a cockiness to him. Um, but he is also very supportive. So it's he's a very complicated character in many ways that I think could easily get lost if you only view this once or if you're only looking for certain things. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, that's one thing that you guys always have me on for horror movies. And I, I like this opportunity because horror, while it's not the only genre I care about, is one that I feel like I can go really in depth on because... There's so much that the genre allows storytelling-wise that you don't see in other places. And one of the, especially when it comes to horror, is you put characters in extreme circumstances and the way they either succumb or surpass these circumstances can be tailor-made to who they are as people and the journeys you want them to take and that you can't get into in other medium. And I feel like with us... Each of the characters had to basically overcome the trappings of suburban life that they are in and the roles they occupy as suburban family. Um, And each one is like tailor-made. So Gabe is just, you know, the black nerd. He's the suburban dad. He's a dweeb. He's a dork. He feels like he makes less money than his friend, who's also kind of a rival. He... He's just very, you know, I hate to use this term just because it's gotten so lame with assholes using it. But, like, he's just very beta male. And (laughs) when he, you know, his journey of, like, he has to overcome himself and then he has to, like, take out his neighbor. And he's, we see early in the movie, he's not passive aggressive isn't the thing. But, like, when he doesn't get what he wants, he, like, whines and guilts people and then just assumes authority. And that's, you know part of the film is like that's his role and what his challenge he's completely removed from his family union you know he's injured so he can't even like make a fake face of it he has to actually get in the shit and he surpasses it and i feel like both of the kids have to do the same thing of overcoming the weaknesses they've been allowed due to their privilege of where they live 
but I feel like uh, Red's arc might be different. I just haven't thought of it yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, can, can I think? just say also speaking speaking briefly, uh-huh. um, just as an aside, um, because you mentioned privilege here, and that was like ah, this is one of those things about becoming really class conscious, class conscious, class class conscious. Okay, I, I can say words. I can say words. Is like just noting. It's like wait a second. You guys have a fucking summer home and a boat. God, you bougie fucks. <laughs> just instantly, which is really weird because when when you look at something like this, like if you had released this film in like the late nineties or early two thousands. Like, we'd been like, yeah, that's middle class. Yeah. And today yep. it isn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, struggle is real. Struggle is part of society now. And I it, it feels definitely like, I don't think this is just a throwback to, you know, the old methodologies of horror. I do think this is a def- deliberate part of the crafted metaphor. Because it is, like, th- there are some layers. And there's a lot of things to think about, like, what the tethered represent. Um, but the socioeconomic divide is definitely one that seems to keep coming back in discussion. And so, like, having them be kind of bougie, I think, does sell that. You know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's really playing on the idea of the forgotten man, right? Which is sort of this narrative that is deeply entrenched in histories of class struggle, um, working class and the poor in particular, but also in these broader histories in the U.S. of things like homelessness, the war on drugs, those things are kind of spectral throughout the movie. They kind of haunt the movie in certain ways, and we can continue talking about that throughout the episode. Well, Annie, you were talking to me before we started the show that this ties directly into the movie with Hands Across America? Yes. Yeah. Please give us some context for this because I okay. didn't know what that was, and um, okay. my initial thought was it seems like a fake '80s thing they made up for an image. I will say yeah. that my only exposure to that was definitely from Beer Fest, where two characters are introduced as like, <laughs> knowing each other, but I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't seen you since the '80s of Hands Across America, <laughs> and that's it. Just, that's my entire exposure to this. So I love to hear more. <laughs> Yep, that's the reference. That's the one, and it's in Beer Fest. Um, But let's talk about the Reagan era and domestic policy, because that's where the Hands on America campaign comes from. Um, So during the 1980s, the Reagan administration made drastic cuts to federal assistance, specifically for local governments. And, um, you know, this was all happening under the auspices of what would become the Reagan administration's 1986 policies on hunger and homelessness. And the policy that they were trying to push through Congress was supposed to combat these things. Of course, they were cutting funding to local programs. They were not sending money to grassroots and community organizations like food banks or homeless shelters or other organizations that help provide homeless people and poor folks with agency and the resources that they need. And so what ended up actually happening during the Reagan administration was that a homelessness crisis that began in the 1970s with federal housing cuts and deep cuts to the food stamp programs 
worsened during the Reagan administration, all while the Reagan administration and a lot of middle class people who had bought into Reaganomics claimed that everything was fine, that things were getting better, that things were trickling down to them. Hands Across America is truly indicative of this form of policymaking. It's this grand gesture that the Reagan administration comes up with in conjunction with this man named Ken Cragen. Cragen felt that in order to support the Reagan administration's policies, what he was going to do was put together a program in which Americans across the United States held hands with each other for one day. They were going to form a human chain that would span the continental U.S. And during that day, in this kind of gesture of democratic solidarity with one another, they were going to raise money for um to feed the hungry and to combat the homelessness crisis, people were going to donate their own money. The Reagan administration had also gotten corporations to support the Hands Across America campaign as well as their platform. Um, and that was what this was supposed to do. There was a real advertisement of the Hands Across America campaign as the campaign that was going to help solve the homelessness crisis, right? Um, again, sort of removing. <laughs> the people from that language. Um, it's a really kind of dehumanizing platform, ironically. So if you think about the concept of the Hands Across America campaign and what it would have required, this was a campaign that basically required people to not be working on the day when they would be doing this, which means that you're going to have people who are financially secure participating in this. So not maybe poor and working class people necessarily, um, or people who've saved up for a while so that they could do this. The campaign also excluded states that were not on the continental U.S. So, for instance, Hawaii actually ended up being excluded from this campaign, which really peeved Tom Selleck. <laughs> um, Tom Selleck was working on Magnum P.I. at the time, and he organized with Hawaiians to do their own version of the Hands Across America campaign to participate in this. There was also this sense that Hands Across America was going to raise a ton of money to combat homelessness in the U.S. And it was targeted, I think, to raise around $50 million. It ended up raising actually closer to $34 million. Only 15 of that actually went to organizations that supported homeless people um, or had food banks. And even then, it was spread very thinly across the U.S., so um, the actual impact of this campaign has been debated for a really long time by historians. And there's a, kind of this feeling that this was a sort of middle class gesture that was not necessarily about poor people so much as it was about the performative aspects of helping the poor, which is reaffirming middle class status. And, um, you know, quite frankly, it is easier to make a large scale gesture like this than it is to work at a community and grassroots level um, doing, you know, social work, helping homeless people to gain new agency and rights and helping them to find housing that is livable and to get food. It's harder to do that grassroots work. It's more expensive to do that grassroots work. And so there was this feeling that the Reagan administration had um, really kind of done this empty gesture to make themselves look good, all while just utterly destroying federal assistance to local governments. 
So that is what Jordan Peele is kind of excavating in this movie. This is what he's talking about, this time frame. And I think, um, you know, what's really kind of cool about that end scene in the film is that it's this inversion of the protest. It's this feeling that, um, you know, all of these people are standing in line together. All of the members of the tethered are standing in line together, not out of consensus. This is not a middle-class gesture. This is a gesture from below. It's a gesture of the people who have been overlooked, who've been forgotten, whose um, suffering has been leveraged so that the people above ground can live high off the hog. Um, and I think that's very, very important. Um, you know, we get the sense as we look at that final shot with all these people in these red jumpsuits that um, there's a kind of scarification of the American landscape in that shot. There's this, you know, beautiful rolling hills with this red line running through it, like a raw scar. And so in that sense, the American body is, you know, injured it's in need of suturing. And I like that that's what we're left with. We're left with this real sense of, of scarring. But on a more positive note, um, one of the cool things about this film too is the way that it uses red, not just as scarring, but as a kind of reference to another site-specific art installation. And that is Jean-Claude and Christo's Running Fence, which was a project from the 1970s that is also about a kind of like large-scale demonstration that's deeply linked into ideas about democracy, how society functions, and discourse. So Christo and Jean-Claude were this team of artists who would build this thing called Running Fence, and it's made out of wood, but it also has these red fabric um, swaths that would run across each of these um, sections of the fence. And so that's part of the installation, the physical work itself. The other part of the artwork is the work of going into communities and talking with people about whether they wanted this artwork here, whether they thought it was appropriate, whether they didn't want it, how they felt about it, how it was going to impact their community. So they would go into town halls, into city council meetings, and talk with actual citizens about whether they wanted this or not. And so it's not just a work that's about, you know, creating this thing that marks the landscape. It's about creating a work with people. It's about discourse. It's about um, dissent. It's about the messiness of living with other people. And that is just, I can feel the resonances of that within that final shot, that messiness, that that scarring that we're seeing there, the pain of talking about these things, of thinking back on our history and feeling uncomfortable, um, I think that that is part of what Peel is trying to get at. Um, if anyone wants to actually listen and learn more about Christo and Jean-Claude's Running Fence Project, it is one of my favorite pieces of art of all time. My friend Anna Goodman, who is just an absolutely brilliant person, has this great podcast. It's called Art is Not a Spectator Sport. It's accessible. It's funny as hell. And it is so, so smart. Go and check out her episode on Christo and Jean-Claude. I, I think we want to get into the meat of this and start talking about the metaphors as soon as possible. 
I just feel like it's a due diligence thing. It's like, ah, you know, this was good, this was good, this was good. The scripting is so very, very tight. That's one thing I'm really... And, like, also the directing and the visual continuity department and all that. Um, because one of the things is um, the twist that um, Addie is actually the tethered and not the original, I think is so well forecasted. that First of all, we got it from the original trailer. But also, even doubting that and second-guessing myself, um, there are so many details that imply it. Um, and my favorite, though, is the... And you get the, the first clue for this very early on in the movie, when the tethered first show up, and Winston Duke adjusts his glasses, and then Abraham adjusts glasses he's not wearing. Oh. It's the, the above-grounders influence the tethered, not the other way around. And so the very fact that Red can win in a fight against Addie tells us she is the original. Because she controls her. She pulls her like a puppet. It's such a... And it's such a visceral scene, too. That is, like... Ah, that scene is so good with the music and the flashbacks to the ballet. Mm. Oh, I love it. Oh, that one particular sequence, yeah. It's so well done. It's just... It's such a good good movie that every element just clinks into place and complements the others oh no it is fantastic and this is this is the thing that upsets me i think and this is like my sole i think like real like substantial criticism is i don't like the ending really? um that is not to say i i don't i don't dislike that addy is the thing I, I don't i don't mind what happens mm-hmm. i just don't like the way it is portrayed and framed um specifically because i think there's a lot of metaphors to look into in this um you know they're socioeconomic um the one that i resonate most with is trauma survival and survivor's guilt um and i feel like it undermines this kind of message that you know like the un- the tethered are just as human as us but denied opportunity and, you know, systemic advantage. And so they are literally downtrodden and, you know, an underclass of people. They are Mm -hmm. wintermensch. And the problem is, like, the idea that they're just as human as us is kind of undermined when you look at these last images that you see, this very, like, last insight into the character of Addie and the character of Red is this framing that just shows so much malice and cruelty that it implies that they are imp- that she is implicitly or inherently evil, like as an inherent part of herself, and that I find somewhat upsetting to the metaphor that I personally bring out of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, though, but like it feels like such a clever movie. They give you so many details, and it's like. I, I, I just feel, and this is maybe like a, you know, art is who consumes it kind of thing that's kind of weird, but like, I feel like for the unexam, for someone watching this without a critical eye, the final takeaway is, oh, she was the monster the whole time, which is not cool because she's not a monster. She's Addie. Like, it's. But uh, that I, also is part of the core concept of this film, right? So when Jordan Peele has talked about this in interviews, one of the things that he said is that, you know, like we have all of these different sorts of 
conversations going on right now where people are pointing to this group and that group, those people over there, they're the enemy, they're the monster. And I think if I remember right, what he said is that people actually need to hold up a mirror to themselves, that when you look at yourself, you actually are the monster in this conversation. And so I think that's part of why I saw Addie's story, I guess, as holding a lot of weight. Like, it's a very human thing, what she's done. It's a very flawed thing. It's a very ugly thing. And it is, in many ways, very monstrous as well. Um, and yet, given the situation, I think it's also kind of understandable. So um, I, I'm kind of okay with the morally fraught territory there. I think that's well, that, that I I really enjoyed the ending. I, you know, from the very first trailer, like we've all said, like you know, people in the horror community were, you know, speculating and trying to you know come up with answers, and that was definitely one of the favorite fan theories, but. I think it makes her a far more complex character is that we don't usually allow our heroes to hate. You know, if they hate anything, it's like, I hate systematic racism or I hate those people who (laughs) dislike the known wizards and things like that. Like the only thing they can ever really hate is like, you know, these abstract concepts while Addie and Red have such a, complex and morally gray relationship considering that you know you can't blame red for taking Addie's place and i, I right. you can't blame Addie for developing the same hate hatred and rage that every yeah. other tethered develops and as you can really yeah. understand it but you know, again, that just results in a, a female character who isn't, uh, is not out of a morality tale. She's not yeah. the good person or the bad person. And those are the characters that leave you thinking, frankly. And those are the ones that, Absolutely. You know, and, and, and this is the thing. Maybe I'm not communicating this properly because I, I, the main thing for me is like, it's just the sadism of it. Mm-hmm. It's the framing of it. It's like when you look at how, like I don't. I agree that what she did was monstrous. She do. She condemned another person. She threw someone under the bus in her stead, and like that is a morally and that is a morally very very gray, very dark gray mm-hmm. action. But the thing is, there's a lot of decisions around the filming of that sequence. Um, for example. Like, the the chaining makes sense, but, like, when she drags her and she's got, like, that twisted smile on her face, mm-hmm. when she waits for her to wake up to change into the shirt in front of her, um, like, to me, what that expresses is not the monstrousness of the act, but it's reveling in it, that monstrosity, and it's showing cruelty. Okay. Well, that's part when... of all these characters. It's like the tethered... That's the part I will, I think I might end up having a differing opinion on this just because I am, you know, horror guy, is that I see this movie as less being a metaphor than being built out of metaphors. Because, you know, as people will start talking about elevated horror or premier horror or try and, like, question whether this movie is, like, actually talking all about, like, the opioid addiction or is a commentary on, like, 
you know. People are coming out of the ground to attacking your house with scissors. It's a goddamn horror movie. It's a goddamn horror For movie. And like, it's also a very clear premise. But what horror, again, horror does is it allows you to put these people in these situation and build fears or build situations that reflect fears that come from people's experiences. So like so much of this movie could only come from this black suburban family. Like it's built out of their fears, out of the current, you know, day and age of like, you know, the, what makes people afraid, what in their environment informs how they think. And that is what you build your fears out of. And this movie does that, you know, stupendously, but it's also 100% about evil clone people who live in tunnels and eat raw mm-hmm. rabbits and for some reason can mask everything you do may or may not have been created by the government i think that's my a minus or the a a not a plus is if they didn't really explain why they're there i liked the magical realism of it adding a weirdo sci-fi twist about mind control was okay but like you know like okay that's a fine and yeah, it's it's really fun that i've been able to describe a mainstream like horror blockbuster as thaumaturgic clones <laughs> yep very much yeah as yeah. above so below mm-hmm. i really love that phrase it's a good phrase it's and a I, really good phrase it was going through my head the entire time i was watching this film as above so below yeah um it's just like i don't know i i also just like i i it just it doesn't the the other thing that i think that i kind of don't like is i feel like there's some mixed messaging going on with what addie is and who she identifies as um because she clearly knows that she is tethered that's imp- that's an important part of her characterization and where she comes to with this kind of decision making and this emotional intelligence of her characterization um however you get certain things like um like her, her being upset for the death of Pluto, I can understand that in the abstraction of, oh, you know, uh, tethered is suffering and dying because, you know, that's upsetting. But at the same time, the way it's framed, it seems to be like my son is dying, and like th- this is the thing is like um when uh, fucking when Jason is looking at her at the end of the film with suspicion, it's like. Yes, she is a tethered. She is not who you thought she was. But that it's not that she was switched after you knew her. It's like she's still his mother. Like that's that's the thing that like weirds me out about the kind of yeah. metaphor here is it's just like the I, I feel like it's trying to flip flop our sympathies in a way that it feels inelegant, I think is what that ending sequence is, is explicitly giving mm-hmm. us that and showing us that cruelty. It's like, huh? She's the monster, and she was the victim. <laughs> and, like, I don't know, because I was talking with another friend, and it just, like, the way we had the discussion is, like, the whole film feels like Peel. That ending reveal feels like studio. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case, and I'm not going to describe that. I really, I really want to see, like, a director's cut or a director's commentary on this. Absolutely, I want to see that. And I'm not going to make, like, declarative statements about how that happened. It's just these these are my personal feelings about the ending. Annie, you might want to cut out the the interjections I was making there. Because I don't want to talk over that. But I will respond in one, two, three. I, I get what you're saying. 
and I can definitely see that perspective. I think again, this, this this movie is still really fresh in my head. I saw it earlier today in a dine-in theater. Thank you, Chicago. But I I think that one thing we're going to see with further analysis of this film is a lot of exploration of masks. It's like in the same way, like the details of uh, you know we've seen in Peel's previous movie of Get Out of the separation of the milk and the Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops are in a cup and the milk is in a cup, or the Fruit Loops are in a bowl and she's eating them by fingers and she's drinking the milk. You'll find, I think, a lot of the same level of detail work with masks in this film and which face is which face is real and which face is the mask. And that because we gave a kid a mask in the film, they are allowed to play with this. And then the final thing, he puts his mask back on. And it, the question is, what does that mean to him? Because we've seen, uh, we've seen his mother go through her different faces. And the question is, which one is her face? And they all, yeah. I, again, they're all valid. I feel like owning up to their own rage and anger and ill will and malice is kind of what the what the tethered are made of because they are mm-hmm. robbed of free will and know nothing but resentment and pain and madness well, the, because they're the tethered are the abject like they are they are what we are not right mm-hmm. Which is a key feature in both gothic fiction and um, in a lot of contemporary horror, really. So I can, again, this is part of, I think, why my brain is willing to make allowances for that ending and some of the stuff that you're describing as well, Matt, just because they are the abject. Like, they are these containers for malice and deep pain that can't be expressed through sound. Like, there's at one point where there's silent screaming, um, oh, that's at, that yeah. was oh, th- yeah, those that... noises are upsetting. Yeah, can I also just say, um, fantastic, like physical performances from so many people. Yes. Um, particularly the sequence, um, the flashback sequence where, um, we're exploring, you know, the old Addie and Red's kind of relationship, and you see the mirroring of her parents and everyone at the fair above them. Just yes. so many uncanny performances. It's oh, it, that man. sequence is so unnerving, and the screaming of the rabbits. Yeah. Oh. Oh yeah. So um, it's an intense, intense sequence. It, you want to talk about the outstanding physical performance? We've already talked. I again, I just will scream to the rooftops about how Winston Winston Duke really just performed his ass off in this one. But I was incredibly surprised by how much. Dread this movie could elicit with goofy, t- goofy motherfucker Tim Heidecker just pulling his best Charlie Chaplin, moving like he's in an adult swim cartoon, and yet the entire time just being entirely upsetting because we're seeing these actions f- that were learned from mirroring a goofball being repurposed for destruction, and that's that's so bizarre and it takes on this kind of physicality of like a playful serial killer like oh no fantastically um when he comes out of the house and he goes solo against gabe like that is very like christian bale and psycho i loved Uh, it yeah 
Also, can I can I just say how fucking weird it is that the it's free real estate guy is like this terrifying serial killer? What the fuck? That's diversity <laughs> at action, my friend. That when we have people of various and diverse backgrounds who can recognize the talents of other people who normally wouldn't get yeah. the full screen treatment, you find people like yeah. Tim Heidecker, the goddamn host of Tim and Eric did weird shit for like five years on Adult Swim, which only people who were high watched was, <laughs> oh yeah, guess what? He's in this movie and he's really creepy because we know he would really do good in this movie at being really creepy. Mm, no, it's... Mm. it's the other person good. that I wanted to give kind of a special shout out to was um, Evan Alex as both Jason... And Pluto, like his performance in as Pluto, is just absolutely disturbing, um, and and pitiful and painful to watch. Um, I don't really know how he did that work, but just yeah, it was incredible. Um, and then also Shahadi Wright Joseph as Zora and Umbre. Uh, yeah, like she's she's really incredible like here we have these two very young actors who are just doing this amazing work in this movie and I kind of hope you know I know that we've talked about child acting before and sort of like the limits of the craft for a child actor because you know you're sort of still learning how to do the work and dang these kids know how to do the work yeah and They're amazing. also I want to say how impressive this is for a for a for a fucking doppelganger movie, that there are no twins. What? No, there's twins. No, okay. There's there's Callie Shannon and Noel Shannon Sheldon that each play one of the twins for the other family. But there's oh, no twins cast as James the same Cameron. person. Oh yeah, gotcha. gotcha. No. Yeah, so and because like that is such a huge thing in child acting, and I feel like that's less of a thing these days. Like it used to be much more of a thing. Um, you know, you got, you know, your famous cases like, you know, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, um, where it was this thing where it's just because of child labor laws, you would have twins. And now it feels like, you know, we're investing so much more into child actors individually. But like for a doppelganger film, it makes so much sense to cast twins and they don't. And it was such a, just talking about things of what this movie does so well is it's so ballsy to just they they took this premise way further than I ever expected from this trailer of turning into it's not a zombie apocalypse it's a everybody's evil twin apocalypse that's uh, who could have thought of that Jordan Peele could have it's thought of that it's doppelganger rock oh <laughs> wow because it, it's and this is another reason why I'm all like oh this is such a great horror movie because this is 100% one of those stupid ideas that you start off with, wouldn't it be funny, and then turns real ugly, real scary, real fast. Like, I feel like this was like in a 30 Rock episode, where like Liz Lemon is writing things down, and she's like, oh, these are my smart ideas I have when I sleep. And one is like, make everyone twins. <laughs> like, and there you go, let's it's be, us. Let's be perfectly honest here. How much money would we put that Jordan Peele came up with this while working on Key and Peele? I was just going to say that. I think that this was actually material that he and Keegan-Michael Key may have 
talked about at some point on the show, like that blend, Matt, we talked about this a little bit before about how horror and comedy have this kind of twinned birth and they frequently intersect with one another. That seems to be a really strong theme in a lot of Key and Peele's comedy, especially in their sketches. And it's really strong in this one, too. And they always love the visual language of horror. Um, just look yeah. at the fucking, you know, gotcha flick on the nose skit. <laughs> yeah. It's like they love that shit. Or like all yeah. the zombie apocalypse things they've done. <laughs> uh, like I think, I think my favorite Key and Peele sketch for this particular subtopic has got to be keep dancing because (laughs) and for everybody who was possibly you know for all the young generation kids listening in the year 2037 and and peel had a sketch called keep dancing which is a set in the 1980s it's a jazzercise aerobics competition (laughs) where both key and peel are just jazzercising it up which is kind of like ancient zumba and then Ron Howard's brother, who is an ugly man, comes out. And he has got clue cards and is letting Peel know that his wife has been, wife and children were incredibly hurt in a car accident. And the entire time, he, in between some of these uh, cards, he's saying, "Keep dancing." And so, it's just it's like a it is a hour and a half thriller movie. <laughs> harrowing thriller <laughs> turned into like a two minute sketch where people cannot stop jazzercising <laughs> and like again like it's in, it's only funny because we've decided it's funny because again this is horrible this is horrifying it's just one extra step and it's this is a story about someone whose family has been annihilated and that's horrifying finding that on live air but because we decided it's funny, it's so funny. And so much of like us is, why is this funny and why is this scary? Is like, well, just because we've decided it's scary. And it especially with like, you know, people like Tim Heidecker and these performances where it's like all of the signifiers are of things we should be finding amusing, but yeah. they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. One last, I think, like really technical craft thing I want to say is the makeup department did absolutely incredible work. Like, I will be upset if this does not win an Oscar for hair and makeup. Well, get ready to be upset, buddy. Oh, of course, of course. But like fucking like just in the posters, the difference between, you know, the tethered versions of the family and the regular versions is just so stark um just the fucking umbre umbre is terrifying to behold even in still oh yes. like oh my god like the the i, I guess i i shadow yeah, I, I don't even know like what piece is doing and you know trans woman i should figure some of this shit out but like fuck and like pluto's burns fuck it uh. I, and I also don't even know. I'm pretty sure they did something for Abraham, but like just like those like over squinted. I think he might not have eyebrows actually, but like the over squinted brow is just like because the difference see. between it's the so... characters is yes. just mind blowing. And it's it's that physicality so much like that's oh man like you can't undersell just how 
how they carry themselves so different. Ooh. Oh yeah, no, no. When when the family scatters, when they when they first approach the house, such a good moment. Oh my god. Um, I actually want to ask you guys a question here, um, because I'm curious what your guys' reaction was to the showing up of the um of the Tyler family doppelgangers. Because this is before we have the information that it is the doppelganger apocalypse. So I'm kind of curious how these layers of information, because one thing that we see in the marketing is that we don't see that there are the other doppelgangers. And so my initial reaction was like, oh, um, is are the doppelgangers getting ahead of them? Are they shapeshifters? And it's only after that sequence that we get um, that we get uh, the confirmation that there is actually one for everyone. Because one thing that I saw was, I saw this contrast where, um, you know, the um, the Wilsons took their time. They were very personal, very intimate, and very, like, deeply angry. Very deeply hateful and malicious towards the family. Like, they were playing with them to a degree. And so when they dispatched the Tylers, like, without hesitation... I was thinking, oh, um, so they're using them as a device to get back to the Wilsons, you know? Hmm. I'm kind of curious how you guys took that. I the the Tyler tethered the Tyler tethereds the tethered Tylers the tethered Tylers <laughs> the tethered <laughs> Tyler tyrants. Yes, it's the tethered <laughs> Tylers who I think do the most to humanize the tethers. Or, I don't know if yeah. they're humanized, but to, like, explain what a tethered who's been untethered behaves like and what the priorities are yeah. for these creatures. Yeah. And so much of it is autonomy, freedom, because, you know, they, these characters don't communicate verbally. They just scream and screech and vocalize. But what they can do is revel in physicality. We see that the Tyler twins, the tethered Tyler twins, are just oh, just performing what gymnastics do them. What's it? Cartwheels and you know jumping Cartwheels, jacks, front just flips. Yeah, front no, wheel, they, front they flips. They are very physical. And uh, Mrs. Tyler is just putting on makeup. And these are like the actions they. This these are the few actions that they have taken in their lives as you know slaves that they have like actually taken some joy in. And now that they're untethered, these are the actions they take and actually experience fully. And that's interesting, which makes the whole actual apocalypse of them going into the hands across America line and being immobile, even more questionable, not questionable, but interesting because there are, voluntarily giving up that autonomy yeah so um i have two things i want to comment one um first of all the shot of dahlia uh elizabeth moth as dahlia as kitty tyler putting on lipstick in the mirror is one of the most haunting shots in the entire film it's so beautifully done and the makeup on her face like that kind of pallidness and like oh so well done but second of all uh, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to talk about transness for a moment there. 
and I didn't really think about this during the thing, but when you're talking about like these things and this revelry and this kind of euphoria that they have in indulging in, I guess, what is the first brush with their authentic selves, um, really does remind me of a lot of things about the experience. Because one of the things you see when Kitty's putting on this lipstick is she seems very unfamiliar with it. And she's, you know, the application is not clean. It's kind of sloppy. And it's only one aspect when her whole face is still fucked up. But here's the thing that gets me is when she smiles, it's still beautiful. And I relate to that as like this first steps towards trying to, you know, beautify and express myself as female where like, you know, it's all these like tiny little things. You just, you do one thing and it can give you so much and it's scary and it's trepidatious and it's, you know. It's monumental when it's such a small task for these other people who have been, you know, aligned with their gender from birth. Mm. Is mm. It is the dropping of a system which has kept you from expressing yourself. Mm. And so it's becoming untethered, unshackled. Yeah. So, you know. That's a great point. I, I, fucking, I fucking love that moment. And that's Solid what makes reads. the tethered so... This, it makes this, you know... It's what makes the horror movie, it's asked these uncomfortable questions. And it is, you can't really blame the tethered for their anger or their rage. And, you know, you, you wish they could have freedom. Like in the, the nice ending has Red and Addie, you know, making up. You know, so she one's like, you know, I, I knew that you could take me with you. And, but they can't. Whenever you meet your double, you have to destroy them and replace them or take what they have. And that's I that's one thing. I don't actually think that's really the tethered. I think that's humanity. That yeah, place I in mean, the situation think of, think we about all how, do the same thing, no matter how sympathetic we might be. Yeah, think about how we talk about doppelgangers um in pop culture. Um because like this is a this is a big thing to talk about here is the way we treat them is a doppelganger is always an intruder and is always here to take what is yours because whenever we like even in like the most jokey like postmodern cultural haha what about this scenario it's like oh um what would you say if uh we had a gun and you were with your doppelganger what would you say to prove you're the real you that's the key operative phrase here is the real you is how do you prove that the other one is inauthentic and therefore unworthy of your identity and your claim and your place in this world? That is the fundamental framework through which we view the doppelganger. We never look at it in this terms of like, okay, cool, how do we coexist? That is something like, I'm sure there are examples, exceptions that prove the rule, but generally speaking, all doppelganger stories end in tragedy and the twist can be that the doppelganger takes your place or that, you know, you kill the doppelganger or the doppelganger survives to come back another day. But it's always there is room for one and we will not make room for another. Yeah, or they also can sometimes end in a fracture of the psyche, right? So, like, um, the idea that seeing your double can actually break your brain, which is the other option here. Um, and I know that is definitely the plot of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Double. 
like that's the end result. You are have right. Have you seen it's the Ariadne um, adaptation of that? No, I have not yet. That's it's very on good. My I enjoyed it quite a lot. List of things. But yeah, um, we're already in the deep cuts. Let's be real. There's no point delineating. It's too this late. <laughs> the oh, whole thing yeah. is a deep cut. Okay, I was just. This occurred to me as yeah. Like, you know, one thing I just want to talk about is the outfit of the tethered. Is like in every every tethered in this movie has a red jumpsuit and a single leather half glove. And I was one, you know, it's a details movie. There's a reason why for everything. And especially when this explains, it was the decision of, uh, this was the decision of the broken Addy who, you know, whose, you know, psyche fractured after she was trapped below. And let's call her red. Let's call her red just to be clear. Okay. Yes. Because uh, if, yes, that is one is... thing that I found is this movie is very difficult to talk to, especially in regards to Addy, because that is a name that is applicable to two characters. So let's just say little girl okay. Addie that got kidnapped and put back in the arc, that's Red. Yes. Addie who grew up and had a life and is a mom, that's Addie. Let's just make that delineation clear so that we can actually have this discussion because fucking hell, I, I, I got very confused about it talking with Kevin. Yes, all of the symbolism of the tethered as an organized unit stems from the broken Red's psyche and all the things that she brought with her to the underworld and that you know completely hands across america blah 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 but why the red jumpsuit with the uh, leather half glove and i was thinking you know i was thinking about it in the theater and i was you know looking this up while we were talking and the costume designer uh and i think peel have gone on record as saying that it was a definite definite riff on the michael jackson thriller outfit and that it was huh. leather, because they're all wearing the red jumpsuits, and that's what they had available to them. And the Thriller shirt and the Thriller music video has Michael Jackson in this red with some black highlights outfit. And if they're actually doing the whole hands across America, those, I think, were like red bodies. So that also plays into it. And them having uh, the leather gloves that are approximately skin-colored for these dark-skinned people. If you hold hands and it just looks like they're just holding hands, even if you're seeing the glove, as it all just fits together into this weird, bizarre pattern that can only come from these people. Yeah, honestly, what I found, what I, what the half glove evoked in me, um, it really reminded me of the Freddy Krueger glove. Like just mm. visually, the I, I especially like the 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 holes on the knuckle. Like, it just, it evoked that for me. Yeah, um, uh, apparently that's what the producer Ian Cooper thought. It's the same for Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah um, well, so... Hmm. I think either way kind of makes a lot of sense, especially when you think about, you know, serial killer fiction as being about duality. And certainly Michael Jackson really embodies the idea of duality in the modern world. Like this absolute mega star, um, the likes of which we probably won't see again. And Monoculture then on is the dead. Other end, um, you know, somebody who in recent documentaries it's has been implicated in doing really horrifying, terrible things to kids. So he really kind of embodies this sort of duality that the film is exploring in many ways. Yeah. Um, 
I actually have a question. What you guys think? What do you guys think the scissors represent? Because that could have been anything. Untethering, I mean, severing. It's it's definitely all part of it. It's yeah. It's the obvious answers of we're going with these daisy chain things. So cutting the separation. Of course, they need to have a slashing weapon. So why not make it scissors? You cut a rope. You cut a tether. So scissors. But like. I'm sure there's some more rooted answers and some more advanced stuff, but I feel like the there, obvious one works for me. Yeah, I think the obvious stuff definitely does make a lot of sense, right? There are also gold scissors, too, which is a really conspicuous yeah. color. Like, these are not just, like, little kids' craft scissors, right? No, these are, like, They're grandma's, gold. like, these are, like, grandma's silk scissors. Oh, yeah, no, these are, like your grandma's fine scissors that she used in a gothic novel for, you know, trimming a dress or something. They're very much drawn from, like, this older time period, almost. Um, And the fact that they're gold, too, is, like, oddly evocative of status, of a different status than what the tethered have. So that's interesting to me, too. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things I think come from this. One is, it's an object that breeds familiarity. Um, like I, I think there's a reason that you know, a but like a butcher's knife or a kitchen knife can be scarier than a sword. Sometimes is this is an object we have in our homes, and I think uh, for a lot of people, like we remember scissors like this as being something that our parents or grandparents have owned. Um, but also, um. I don't know specifically that they are tailoring scissors, but they seem like they could be. And those, I think a lot of kids have, like, memories of of just, like, having an accent with them because you don't understand how sharp they are. Like, you know, they're used for these very delicate purposes. So I think that is one thing that is might be possibly be trying to be invoked there is that, you know, visceral memory of accident and injury and danger. But also... Um, with the specific form of how they are designed, they are daggers. Um, they ha- the the handles actually become like a handguard, and there is this kind of ritualized way that they handle them. Especially you see in like the kind of military preparation scene, where like they hold it, they move it, and they they kind of you it's it's almost like a rifle drill for like a marine, but with the scissors. Um, so there is definitely a lot of like very specific connotations that are being played with, um, but yeah, there's a lot, and I'm sure like there's going to be more analysis. And I, this is the thing that upsets me. I'm broke right now. I'm between paychecks, so I didn't get to see this twice, and I really would have loved to. Um, because the other thing I think that kind of comes to this is. There's this evocation of, you know, Hands Across America in 1986 of childhood because a lot of this kind of megalomania plan, this revolution is this idea that it comes from a broken child's mind. And I can see that as being like the most dangerous object a child should be familiar with. You know, don't run with scissors. Careful Mm. with those. You'll cut yourself. No, no, no. Those are those are for mommy. Those are for mommy to cut clothes. Don't use that for arts and crafts, you know? Yeah, definitely. I can see that. I think those are some aspects that come into it. And, like, I would love to... I I want a director's commentary so very badly. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get one. Oh, no, I'm very excited for that. 
God, this movie was a lot. This is the other thing also. Because I was expecting a twist ending, and because um, this movie was so harrowing, like, I lost my sense of time in this. I don't know if you guys really had that experience, but because I was primed to look for a twist ending, several of the midpoint twists, like, you know, oh, um, the... um, the doppelganger apocalypse. I was just like, oh, is this the twist ending? Is it over? I don't know. And so, like, I had a few false endings. And so, like, this movie was kind of exhausting to watch because of that. It was just, like, it it was two hours. It felt longer, for me, at least. I don't, uh... I'll start it over, because I know that's kind of a lot of dead air. One, two, <laughs> three... I, you know, it was it was weird, because I feel like my sense of time with this movie kind of got lost as the scope got bigger, because I was not expecting all of this to take place in one night. I thought they were gonna go home and then have another encounter on the beach when things would start getting weird. But like, yeah, I was like, ready for I the th- scene I to thought be the over. Cop, I thought the cops were gonna show up and then like they'd come back later. Like, I right. thought the twist was going to be, like, the cops would show up eventually, finally, at, like, the Tyler household, and they'd be like, oh, um, you murdered a white family. You know? Mm-hmm. There's, like, so many things that could have happened and didn't. Like, this, like, am I the one who felt, like, the false, the false endings here? Is that just a me experience? Well, uh, I don't know if I felt like false endings, but I felt like the descent into the underworld from the you know, the beachside funhouse was, it, it kind of made the whole, like, the science fiction aspect of it kind of feel, uh, I don't know, tacked on. Because that was very magical realism of this is improbable weirdness. Just, the, everything just turns weird with no explanation. And that, I felt kind of like that was leading into the into the finale. And so then... Everything after that, it kind of just kept that hazy, dreamy feeling. Yeah, I have to admit, that was kind of how I felt as as well. Um, in terms of time passing, I don't know if I noticed it like that. But then again, like I was kind of wrapped up in this story, I think, too. And like trying to figure out what was going on. So maybe I didn't notice it for that reason. Yeah. So I'm... I'm curious what I, what the final shots kind of mean to people because one of the things that I'm seeing um, is first of all you've had this incredible wave of violence so many people have died this does kind of look like the end of things and the start of something new um, but one thing one detail that specifically stands out to me as we kind of pass over the world and you know they're driving away we pass over fields and hills and vale and we see the line crossing all of America one of the last things we see though is we see helicopters. And I don't know what that means. Um, I I kind of have my doubts that the untethered, that the tethered, now the untethered, I suppose, um, that they have, like, the ability to pilot a helicopter. So is this just, like, the news organizations looking at this? I don't understand what we're looking sure. at with that final shot. I, again, like, I feel like it's kind of a horror movie. I, I keep saying this, but, like, it, it's not necessarily going for like the big profound blah 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 blah, because in horror movie tradition, like leaving with that like 
sick image that makes your stomach twist into a knot is just, you know, you want to go with that. You always want to end either on a twist or the knife twist. And the idea of, like, this is happening all over. The world is going to be changed. And all these, again, our family of, like, brave survivors who are able to get past this, even though, you know, we're following them because they're the center of this, you know, apocalypse, because of it's uh, Addie and Red, who are the, you know, progenitors but otherwise like they survived so all of these other people did not yeah um the other thing and i've just looked this up because i was actually also curious about this because i realized i hadn't actually taken the time to look up the biblical reference jeremiah eleven eleven, and What's the, jeremiah the 11, 11? um it's biblical and um, no, no, it is here time. i will quote um Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Oh. So, um, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. And, I mean, there's a couple ways to apply that, and I don't <sighs> think it's necessary to really dive into that. I just feel that adds a bit of context. Um, can, I, uh, can I give yeah? a little bit of a confession Please. here? Absolutely. I don't know if this is low-key dyslexia. I don't know if it's being a lazy reader. But uh, when I first saw that, I thought that man had a sign that said Jeremiah Hill. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know why. Like, is, there, like, is that like a musician? Is, it like, is he like picking up a guy in a taxi named Jeremiah Hill? Like, okay, I don't know. What, this is weird. No, no, no. This whole movie is just like an awkward love letter to Joe Hill. <laughs> no um fucking just like because here is the thing because i actually have an interpretation now that i'm thinking about first of all i love the the what's his face the the sign holding apocalypse guy you know like he he, he's a very tropey character you know the doomsayer but i love that he's the first one there because like Finally, at the end of the movie, we have the context. He was the first one in the daisy chain. He was the first one to murder himself. Mm -hmm. And we didn't pick up on the clues because we didn't have the context for it. Now, that being said, um, there's two ways I think you can apply this biblical verse here. Is um, I will bring upon them a calamity that they will not escape. That can be either to to the above grounders or to the tethered. But... Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Um, so I think the first way you look at that is that this applies to the people above ground. The calamity is the rising of the clones. Eat that, George Lucas. Eat it. <laughs> Fucking eat it. Um, but, you know, they will cry out and nothing can save them. But the other thing that I'm seeing here, though, is particularly coming back to the helicopters. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Because one of the ways that they talked about, you know, the revolution and the daisy chain and the thing is that it was a statement. Is that it is this performance. It is showing this thing. It is this grand statement. And I think what you can read the news choppers as, because that seems to be what they are, is that the statement ultimately says nothing or that it is not listened to and that society will reestablish itself, and this revolution is a temporary thing, which you know kind of turns the horror back to the perspective of the tethered. 
Because, I mean, when you look at it, it's kind of like it's taken this big public display of, you know, hands across America. And I think it's kind of taken that language and put it somewhere in the language of protest. Oh, right. No, it definitely is. Like, it's it's doing something different than just the original staging of it. It's signifying on it, right? It's it's transforming the original meaning of that gesture of holding hands with a bunch of people into a counter-protest, almost, yeah. of what it was originally But that's the thing that happens for. with so many protests, is they are yeah. ignored or they are met with violence, which is, I think, an implicit threat of what might happen in the future to these tethered. Because it's kind of a what now kind of ending. So this is just the thought that, like, I do genuinely think that will apply here. Like, that's just kind of chilling to me. Just, like, finally looking up this Bible verse is I think that's a way that I can actually contextualize the newest helicopters as being important and saying something. Ba-boom, boom. Ba-boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, I think... Do we want to call this one here? Like, I this think, is... Yes. There, there's so there's... much going on in this movie. And, like, I, I just... I do want to come back to it, I think, maybe even. But, like, it's just, like, I need to see it again. There's so much... I, There's I, so I much going on, and I'm really happy we didn't talk about Get Out very much, because like, it's, I feel like doing talking about Get Out when talking about us does us a disservice, because yeah. they're not the same movie. They're not no, supposed they to be not. the same movie, and that's that's good. Okay, that, so that's for the good. closing note, I want to reintroduce a feature that I feel like we have neglected for a long time. Oh. I'd like to hear director this. What would we say? What would we say well, like, for our closing thoughts? What would we say to Jordan Peele about this? Uh, Matt, do you want to start, Mister Horror Fanboy here? Jordan Peele, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Love Neptune. And I'd like to say, uh, I thought it was pretty great. Thank you, man. Uh, <laughs> Annie, please save me. Please save you? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, dear Jordan Peele, please keep making movies. Um, please keep doing things in a vein that is surrealist and horrifying all at the same time. You're doing good work. Yeah. That's it. <sighs> dear Mr. Peele. Thank you so much. Keep knocking it out of the park. And fucking hell, dude. Jesus. Get therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, this has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Jess Whitmore. You guys can find me on Twitter at QuasiNim. Annie, where can people find you and yours? People can always find me on Twitter at at Lights and Music. That's Lights, E-N, Music, all one word, no caps. She posts pictures of her dog. He's adorable. He is a terror, truly. And Matt, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? (laughs) Don't give me that shit again. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Spook Show Cinema. All one word, no underscores, because I got there first. And I write comic reviews and other articles on But Why Though. But Why Though Podcast.com. Excellent. And thank you so much for coming on. You guys can find us 
on Twitter at MovieMoreCast, on Facebook at MovieMorePodcast. And um, if you want to support us, um, first of all, you're already doing so, but just by listening, and we thank you so much, and we're grateful every single fucking day. Um, that being said, um, if you want to contribute in a more tactile way, like us, review us, retweet us, um, you know, particularly on iTunes, leave us a review. That helps a lot more than you think. And most of all, tell your friends, okay? Just say like, hey, there's these bunch of fucking nerds who talk about fucking movies, and they're all right, I guess. Um, the other thing that we have is we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash quasinim that keeps us in server space and celluloid. And just thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. Um, just as a little short announcement, we are going to be migrating to a bi-weekly schedule just because things have been rough. Annie and I have been very busy and we want to make sure the quality stays up. And, you know, we don't want to run ourselves ragged for this. So sorry for that, but also we hope that it makes the content better. Anyways, um, our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factibus. You can find a link to their EP in the description. And uh, thank you guys so much. We love you all. Stay safe. And um, don't answer the door when the doppelganger's there. For the love of God, don't answer that fucking door. (laughs) Bye-bye. Dancing. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>